Uh, I think one of the things that struck me in this year we've been working on this report uh, was not only the extremity of what's going on in Florida, but how much it is, as some have said to us, a canary in the coal mine for higher education in general. The question I ask myself is what gives me hope? The people who are out there resisting every day, they're the ones who give me hope. The ones who raise their voices every day, develop coalitions, organize alternative commencements to protest their college administration. They give me hope that all isn't lost in Florida just yet. What we are witnessing in Florida right now is an intellectual reign of terror. There's a tremendous sense of dread right now, not just amongst faculty. It's tangible amongst students and staff as well. People are intellectually and physically scared. You're being named an enemy of the state. That's from a new report called Political Interference and Academic Freedom in Florida's Public Higher Education System, out today. The special AAUP report comes after sustained and growing attacks on academic freedom and higher ed in general in Florida by Governor Ron DeSantis and his allies. In January 2023, the AAUP announced the formation of a special committee to review what the AAUP described as, quote, an apparent pattern of politically, racially, and ideologically motivated attacks on public higher education in Florida. The committee interviewed more than 65 individuals, including faculty, students, alumni, and trustees, as well as university leaders, including former presidents. It's an incredibly compelling report. Definitely give it a read after you listen to the podcast today. The program is guest hosted by Anita Levy, a senior program officer in AAUP's Department of Academic Freedom, Tenure, and Governance. She staffed the special committee. She's joined by Afshan Jaffer, a professor of sociology at Connecticut College and a co-chair on the committee, as well as Henry Reichman, a professor of history at California State University, East Bay, and another co-chair of the report, as well as Liz Leininger, a neuroscience professor who previously taught at New College of Florida. We start the podcast talking about the ideological takeover of New College of Florida as a case study of what's happening more broadly in the state before looking at the statewide crisis in higher ed. I'll turn it over to Anita now. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining me today. So Afshan and Hank, as you know, what's happening to public higher education in Florida is startling in its enormity, but it boils down to Governor Ron DeSantis's self-proclaimed war on woke, quote unquote, since his reelection in 2022 with a Republican supermajority in the legislature. The AUP, as you well know, has been looking into attacks on higher ed throughout this past year, since its January 2023 appointment of a special committee to investigate in May 2023, the committee issued a preliminary report concluding that, quote, academic freedom, tenure, and shared governance in Florida's public colleges and universities currently face a politically and ideologically driven assault unparalleled in U.S. history. Uh, tell us more about what's happening in Florida. There's a lot happening in Florida. The special committee worked, as you said, for several long months on this report, and that was partly because there were new developments daily in Florida. The scope of the attacks on several fronts in Florida really is quite massive. 
through the power of the governor, the legislature, and their influence on the board of governors and campus boards of trustees, we're seeing attacks on tenure, uh, attacks on unions, the ability for faculty to organize and fight back. We're seeing restrictions, purely ideological restrictions on the curriculum, the latest of which is removing sociology from the general education curriculum. We're seeing an erosion of uh, protections for LGBTQ employees and students and uh, a dismantling of DEI offices. And finally, we're also seeing a class of administrators and leaders who are appointed simply because of their political connections, thus ensuring that nobody in the leadership will speak out against these attacks. Uh, and sadly, even those who aren't political appointments are not speaking out against what is happening because of the climate that's been created under these attacks. Um, so the situation in Florida is is dire, I would say. Yeah, I think uh, Afshan has certainly uh, summarized it well. Uh, I think one of the things that struck me in this year we've been working on this report uh, was not only the extremity of what's going on in Florida, but how much it is, as some have said to us, a canary in the coal mine for higher education in general. For years, of course, the AAUP has always focused on individual attacks on professors for their speech in class or for their extramural speech. But increasingly, we are seeing these broad-based attacks on uh, not only the professoriate, but really on higher education as a whole. It's not, to me, a coincidence that in its history, the AUP has only done, I think, about five or six or so of these, maybe I think six or seven uh, of these special reports uh, that deal with multiple institutions um, like Florida. Yet three of them in the last three years, we did one on uh, the COVID uh, crisis and governance in 2021. Last year, uh, both Afshan and I were on a, a special committee investigating North Carolina, and now we're doing Florida. And so I think this, you know, what's worrying to me is the picture, rather dire picture we paint in this report, is in fact something that could spread very easily throughout the country and is uh, is not just confined to the state of Florida. Liz, uh, a good bit of the report focuses on New College of Florida, which, as you well know, is an alternative liberal arts college within the Florida state system. Events there uh, represent a microcosm of radical changes happening statewide. Uh, just as a bit of background, in January 2023, the governor appointed new trustees to the new college board. Those highly partisan appointees vowed to, quote, demonstrate that the public universities, which have been corrupted by woke nihilism, can be recaptured, restructured, and reformed. Liz, you were a faculty member at New College before DeSantis started this takeover. Um, what role did New College play in the state system uh, of Florida? So New College was designated as Florida's public honors college. Um, it, But as you also said, New College is not just an honors college. It's a sort of progressive experimental style of college. We have a student body of between 700 and 800 students, so a very small, tight-knit residential community, and really a community and an academic program that 
prioritizes student agency and student ownership over their own education. So, for example, students can personalize their curriculum with Oxford-style tutorials and uh, directed research. We give students detailed narrative evaluations instead of letter grades, so emphasizing students being able to challenge themselves and really stretch themselves and grow and explore areas without the fear of a GPA hanging over them. We have a very high percentage of our students go on to earn PhDs in the field. I believe we're 12th nationally per capita of, you know, uh, undergraduate student body that goes on to earn a PhD. Students have earned 89 Fulbright awards uh, within the 63-year history of the college. I think this is relevant to the, the culture war aspect of this, is that New College had the culture obviously attracted students who maybe didn't fit the typical mold of a student who just said, just tell me what to do, just tell me what classes to take. We attracted a lot of out-of-the-box thinkers that, you know, um, were able to use the flexibility and the customizability of their education to really do amazing things. (laughs) We did not have Greek life or varsity athletics, and we were also a very inclusive community for queer students, for LGBTQ plus students. And so I think that particular aspect of student life on campus is is relevant, as we'll explain later, to uh, some of the goals of the takeover. So let's look a, a little more closely at the new College Board of Trustees, the newly appointed members. Hank, who who were these people that the governor appointed, and what was DeSantis's agenda in making these new appointments? Well, these appointments all came. There were uh, seven appointments uh, in January. Uh, to the board, which completely transformed the nature of the board. Five of those appointees were out-of-state, well-known conservative activists. Two of them uh, had been involved in President, former President Trump's so-called 70, 1776 Commission, which was a rather crude and uh, ahistorical response to the 1619 Project. Perhaps the most well-known of them was Christopher Rufo, uh, who is a very outspoken uh, person on social media. He's often credited by many people of, of turning the rather scholarly notion of critical race theory into some kind of big bugaboo. And uh, upon being appointed, Rufo tweeted the following. He wrote, we are now over the walls and ready to transform higher education from within. Under the leadership of Governor DeSantis, our all-star board will demonstrate that the public universities, which have been corrupted by woke nihilism, can be recaptured, restructured, and reformed. And that clearly was the agenda uh, that New College was to be and is to be a model for what they really want to do for higher education. Looked at, however, more cynically, uh, one can see that, in fact, they're not very consistent in their model. On the one hand, they say they want to have a classical education like the uh, the Christian conservative college Hillsdale does. One of the new trustees is from Hillsdale. But at the same time, they're recruiting athletes and business majors. Uh, and in fact, one of the people we uh, interviewed, a faculty leader, actually told the committee that he thought the real goals of the takeover were just three, to reward the, the new president, Corcoran, who was a uh, political crony of uh, DeSantis's to provide a platform for Rufo and to fuel the culture culture war uh, against the so-called woke. Uh, and they really didn't care much about what kind of education would be there. Uh, remains to be seen. So, 
Liz, you were there while all this was happening. Uh, how did the campus community at New College respond to this onslaught? I think that everybody immediately understood the threat. And as soon as the seventh member of the Board of Trustees was appointed, so the faculty found out that information when we met in January to certify the fall graduates. And immediately then we realized in a 13-member board, now there was a clear, simple majority of appointees all at once. I think for a lot of the faculty at that moment, then we started connecting the dots like, oh, now they could fire the president if they wanted to. And they did. Like now they they have a simple majority to be able to push through a lot of things with minimal process, without um, working with the faculty, et cetera. The students obviously noticed it very quickly with all of the sort of culture war issues, not to speak for students necessarily, but based on what students were saying in the media and on campus, um, they sort of knew that their community was under threat. So their learning environment, the quality of their learning environment, and then also possibly the social environment of campus was under threat. And alumni also saw it too. And so in terms of how the responses has unfolded over the last year, again, with a group of countercultural free thinkers who maybe aren't always on board with organizing completely in one direction. We've seen, I guess, a very diverse array of strategies of people working in groups to raise awareness of what's happening. So we've had many members of the community speaking to the media about New College and also just New College being that canary in the coal mine for further transformation of higher education. A number of Nonprofit organizations such as NCF Freedom, which is focused on policy and legal, the Novel Collegian Alliance, which is focused on community advocacy and support and resources, were formed and incorporated. Then a lot of grassroots ad hoc organizing on WhatsApp groups <laughs> and other social media to kind of work behind the scenes. And then, of course, the faculty, as, as much as they had been able to, could voice their opinions through the mechanisms of governance that we have. But overall, you know, I, I've been blown away by the amount of outspokenness in the media um, that faculty, staff, students, alumni, and concerned community members have have spoken up about and responded to. And so speaking of educational transformation, uh, in April of this year, attacks on tenure at New College began. Afshan, can you walk us through the steps DeSantis's handpicked board took to undermine nearly every structure at the college, including tenure, the curriculum, and the LGBTQ community? Uh, that's right. As you just mentioned, in April, the board denied tenure to five faculty members. But things had started going downhill way before that point, as Liz just said, uh, starting with January where at their January board meeting, the newly reconfigured board with their simple majority of appointed people moved to terminate the appointed appointment of President Acker. Um, and then at its February meeting with interim President Corcoran now in office, the board of trustees voted to eliminate the college's Office of Outreach and Inclusive Excellence. So this was their first step at uh, doing away with DEI. Um, and then they also moved to remove the request for diversity statements by job candidates from the faculty handbook. And it was after that point that the layoffs also started, which often targeted the most prominent and outspoken members of the LGBTQ community. 
those were definitely the first few who experienced the initial layoffs, although, you know, it expanded beyond that pretty quickly. And then the tenure denials of five faculty members came in April. And I want to be clear that these were cases that had already been approved by the Faculty Review Committee and the previous interim president, Bradley Thiessen, who served right before President Corcoran became interim president. Shortly after that, the interim president, Corcoran, at this point, revealed his plan for a new curriculum, which would be more in line with a traditional or a classical liberal arts model, as they referred to it. Uh, Again, this vision was not something that was faculty-driven, and it was coming at the direction of the board members who wanted to reshape New College uh, into an image of the the Christian Hillsdale College. This was something, as Hank said earlier, that the trustees were clear about right from the start, you know, tweeting about how they were going to transform New College. And that's exactly what they did step by step. Every single month that they met, it was a new attack, a new uh, kind of dismantling of the new college that existed. So as Hank said earlier, and as you said, Afshan, this attack on tenure goes well beyond new college with the uh, implementation of recently passed post-tenure review law in the state of Florida, which seems to open the door for arbitrary and politically motivated faculty dismissals. Um, Hank, what do ABU policies have to say about post-tenure review? Well, the the law now in in Florida mandates post-tenure reviews, and the Board of Governors of the Florida University System adopted a uh, a new policy to govern post-tenure review at all the campuses. Now, each of the campuses already had a post-tenure review uh, process, but it was not linked. And this is important for the AUP policies. It was not linked to discipline or dismissal. Uh, But the new policy now has provisions where at the end of the the post-tenure review process, uh, a faculty member can be dismissed. And the most chilling part of it is that even if the post-tenure review results in a recommendation by uh, the faculty in the in, in the individual's department and college, or and even by the dean, that the faculty member is meeting expectations and sh- and should be continued. That the provost and the president have the power to overrule that and immediately dismiss that faculty member. Now, this hasn't been employed yet, but if in fact. that is possible, that means from the AUP standpoint, tenure, which is simply the right of a a faculty member to a continuing appointment subject to dismissal only for cause as determined through a appropriate due process procedure, that that tenure would not really even exist in the state of Florida. At this point, one could even argue that uh, the post-tenure review process in Florida uh, at least on paper, contains at least the possibility that, frankly, tenure as the AUP understands it no longer exists in the state of Florida, which is pretty chilling. That is indeed dismal. And as to the states where tenure is 
under attack or has been turned back. Um, add Georgia in for sure. But thank you for that explanation. That's very helpful. Uh, turning back to New College, Liz, as you explained, and as we know, there was pushback to events there, uh, including a response from the United Faculty of Florida New College chapter, which sent a letter to the board calling the tenure denials, quote, a nakedly political action that is hostile to the college, end quote. The new college faculty voted to censure the board by a margin of 80%, yet that action didn't stem the tide. In fact, members of the board of trustees actually publicly attacked faculty members, such as Professor Eric Wallenberg. Uh, Liz, walk us through these events as they unfolded. Were faculty able to exercise their collective governance rights in other ways? Uh, if so, were they successful? I'll start with the faculty issues. So Eric Wallenberg was a visiting professor at New College, and his contract non-renewal essentially was a dismissal, not based on anything about his competence as an instructor. As far as what's been reported, he's received positive um, evaluations of his teaching. His division chair had even, you know, offered to extend his contract, and that was all in process, just as as one does when renewing visiting professor contracts. Professor Wallenberg and then another visiting professor, Debraji Biswas, had co-published an um, article critical of De the DeSantis administration in Teen Vogue. This caught the attention of Chris Rufo, who tweeted about it, and ultimately um, Wallenberg's contract was not renewed given with no reason given. And so this is one example where we suspect that Professor Wallenberg's political and academic freedom views of being able to express, um, you know, his expertise in history, right, in public-facing scholarship um, cost him his job. And Wallenberg, of course, was not protected by tenure as a visiting professor, but he and Debrati Biswas were almost empowered to be able to speak their mind because they knew that they wouldn't be called for a post ten review, right, by publishing this. Um, they could really speak their mind and they've now gone on to find, you know, jobs elsewhere and they're continuing their careers, which is awesome for them. Um, in terms of the faculty members deny tenure, so um, those files had, again, made it all the way through to um, Brad Thiessen, who was the interim interim president of New College um, at the time. He wrote a positive letter. When interim president Corcoran assumed the role, he then took the tenure files and inserted a second letter stating that he did not support tenure on the basis of, you know, changes to the curriculum, et cetera not on any basis of the faculty members' achievements in their areas. All of them had glowing external letters of review. Some of them had external letters of review that said they would have earned tenure at an R1 university. So their scholarship was top-notch. Their teaching was excellent. They had excellent reviews all the way up until this point. Corcoran also met with all of the faculty and pressured them to remove their files at that point. And for the ones who didn't, then he inserted that letter saying he did not recommend tenure. And so then ultimately the board of trustees 
decided to just vote no on all of the tenure cases um, without any substantial discussion of the files. So to us, it was very clearly um, a politically motivated denial of tenure for these faculty members. As you mentioned, yes, the faculty censured the board of trustees, um, didn't really seem to make a difference, but at least we are on record saying this is not okay. <laughs> all of these things that are happening, not just the tenure denials, but many other things are not okay. We do not abide by the actions of the board of trustees. You know, we're still, as much as we can, new college faculty are trying to maintain the strength of the union, despite anti-union bills be having been passed in Florida, um, and continuing to try to work through the union and through our governance processes to um, help maintain the integrity of our academic program. If I can add one more thing about the Wallenberg case, which I think is extremely important, I just want to stress how extraordinary it is for a trustee uh, to get involved, as Rufo clearly did, in an employment decision of a visiting temporary part-time faculty member off the tenure track. I mean, it's almost unheard of. And the notion that his objection to an article public that uh, Wallenberg co-wrote, as uh, Liz explained, could become the basis for just denying his reappointment is is extraordinary. And Rufo made the statement that he says there should be no room for what he call it middling left wing intellectuals. And we quote in our report, uh, James Grossman, who is the executive director of the American Historical Association, he wrote a letter uh, in support of Wallenberg. And he pointed out, he says, well, you've shown no evidence that he's middling. Uh, in fact, all the evidence was that he was quite accomplished in, in his work. He said, so that leaves that he's uh, he certainly you don't want to say that you don't have intellectuals in a university. So clearly it's just that he's left wing and that's a political censorship. So and I think it's important because this is a pattern throughout the country now that as much as three quarters of the faculty everywhere are off the tenure track, uh, that non reappointments. Uh, for reasons that violate academic freedom are just as much a violation of AUP principles as the dismissal of a tenured faculty for such reasons. So it sounds like the new board got very busy very quickly. And throughout the summer, the administration and the board continued to enact radical changes at New College, including, as we said, a major overhaul of the curriculum, modeled in part after Christian universities, a focus on recruiting student-athletes without having facilities or teams to host them, and the closure of the gender studies program. According to the report, these actions demonstrated, quote, both disregard of and disdain for long-held principles and practices of joint effort in the management of American institutions of higher education. Afshan, um, can you explain how these actions were contrary to longstanding AAUP principles of academic freedom and shared governance? As Liz's narrative just made clear, I think it's safe for us to say that there is very little joint effort in the manner called for in the 1966 statement. According to that statement, the faculty has primary responsibility for areas like curriculum, uh, subject matter and methods of instruction, faculty status, uh, and even those aspects of student life which relate directly to the educational process. These are areas where faculty are supposed to be experts, not the administration, 
not the board, not the governor. Uh, in these areas of faculty primacy, the statement goes on to say, the governing board and president should concur with the faculty judgment, except in rare instances and for compelling reasons, which should be stated in detail. Now, again, as Liz's answer just made clear, these policies were not being followed at New College. We've discussed how the change in curriculum was initiated by the board and the interim president. The gender studies program was dismantled by the board in opposition uh, to faculty and student uh, regard for that program. We've also discussed that faculty were denied tenure in opposition to the judgment of the faculty review committee and the previous interim president. And as Liz also made clear, and I want to emphasize here, this was done without an actual engagement with the contents of each tenure file. The five members who were denied tenure were basically denied tenure as a group. And one stated reason for it was to ensure that uh, future faculty members at New College are more mission aligned, a term that we kept hearing over and over again. Uh, the board loves to talk about being mission aligned. President Corcoran loves to talk about it, that they want to ensure that faculty are more mission aligned in the future. That is the new mission, the way that they define it as being more of a classical slash, you know, traditional liberal arts uh, education, by which they really, what they mean is that they want a conservative, maybe even a Christian liberal arts college, at least a college that's influenced by that kind of education. Another area of faculty primacy that has been taken over by trustees or, and the administration is faculty hiring and termination. Again, let's just discuss the case of Professor Wallenberg and his non-reappointment. But we're also seeing this kind of meddling in faculty hiring. And again, as Hank just pointed out, these are unusual, really, really unusual things for trustees to be involving themselves in. Um, we see this desire for finding mission-aligned faculty members play out on Twitter by the Board of Trustees. As one of our interviewees stated, Trustees are trolling for candidates on Twitter. And as ridiculous as that sounds, that is not an exaggeration. Uh, trustees are gathering CVs of candidates they want to put forward through Twitter and then sending them to President Corcoran and basically telling him these are the people who need to be hired at New College. Now, faculty search committees are still on paper. They are still functioning, right? And they still exist. But... Faculty search committees find themselves having to make the terrible choice of not participating and allowing the president to choose or to rank those candidates who they know will be deemed acceptable and have the president choose from that list. So there is what we refer to in the report as anticipatorial obedience on the part of faculty search committees. Um, but to be fair, they don't really see another option in this climate. All of this has led to a total undermining of faculty and their rights, especially in the areas where they're supposed to exert primary responsibility. Instead, what we're seeing is the imposition of the ideological agenda of Governor DeSantis and his cronies, many of whom are on the board of trustees, um, and many who are totally unqualified to be making any kinds of decisions about areas of faculty expertise. Just as a footnote to Afshan's excellent 
response, the 1966 statement to which he refers is the statement on government of colleges and universities. It's one of the fundamental AAUP policy statements related to the area of governance. So the next question is is for Liz. The upheaval at New College has had impacts well beyond the curriculum. The governor's power in the state system also comes with significant financial gain to his cronies, as uh, Afshan uh, mentioned, and who become presidents or visiting scholars uh, in the system. Um, is, is that right? Are you aware of this um, cronyism running rampant in the system? Absolutely. And I think one of the things I appreciate about the report is the clarity by which we see all of these laws over the past three years acting together to be able to enable this to happen. So the law SB 520 in 2022, which shields Florida public college and university presidential searches from public records requests um, until the finalist stage enables politicians such as Ben Sass at the University of Florida, Richard Corcoran at New College, Randy Fine almost at FAU, and the list goes on, right, to become um, presidents of colleges and universities. So that law particularly um, enables politicians to gain positions of power at colleges and universities. And then, you know, many senior leadership positions at colleges and universities serve at the pleasure of the president. So once you have a president in that's mission aligned, then they can begin bringing in administrators who are also mission aligned at a high level. Then SB 266 in 2023, again, expands the administrative roles in hiring decisions. So as Afshan said, the president proposed being able to insert candidates at the finalist stage or to have sort of an outsized role over hiring then allows for political um, interference with, you know, the the integrity of the hiring process. And so one thing at New College that's happened is, first of all, tenure track searches are not going great. (laughs) Last year, there was a botany search that failed because the applicant pool evaporated after January 6th. They're rerunning the search this year. We'll see how it goes. But then what Corcoran did was he created presidential scholars in residence which are not tenure track positions, but they are meant to be kind of senior visiting um, scholar positions to bring great thinkers to new college. And many of these are, you know, quote unquote, mission aligned folks being paid an exorbitant amount of money. So, for example, Stanley Fish is a big name who is coming to teach at New College and his um, contract is for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. That might not sound like a lot to some people, but (laughs) at New College, most full professors barely make above one hundred thousand dollars a year. And they're teaching, they're doing service, they're supervising thesis students, they're doing they're doing their research, they're doing a whole lot of work. And now they're being paid much less with respect to scholars who are being brought in for, you know, um, for show basically and being paid a huge amount of money to do it. In terms of the administration, there's a really great article in Inside Higher Ed that summarizes many of the political cronies who've been then brought into the leadership. For example, David Rancourt, who was a a lobbyist, is now the um, director of um, student affairs with no prior student affairs experience. Um, Vice President of Enrollment Management 
had not previously worked in admissions, but he worked for the Florida Department of Education and played a role in the state's decision to ban ban AP African-American studies, for example. And then um, the head of the New College Foundation, Sidney Gruders, is the former chairperson of the Republican Party, I believe, in Sarasota and is married to State Senator Joe Gruders, who is a local Republican politician. So you can see that either through the president directly or um, other means, you know, this overall replacement of um, faculty and staff with those who are mission aligned. Wow, that's quite a picture. So how has all this turmoil impacted students at New College? Yeah, the, the most tragic part of all of this is the students. Many of us are in education and academia because of students and, you know, helping students reach their full potential. And it's not a great situation right now. So many students have uh, transferred with dozens of them going to Hampshire College, which had was another is another progressive college. So dozens of students have taken up the offer to transfer there. Some students can't transfer though. New College is the the economically feasible college for them, or it's the college that they have wanted to go to since they were 12 years old and you know they're gonna finish their education there. So but regardless, I think there's been a lot of turmoil. They started this athletics program, recruited a bunch of students in the late spring and summer, perhaps that hadn't been recruited to other colleges otherwise. And the academic profile of those students was, you know, typically lower than what we would see for um, somebody coming to new college. With full disclosure that I feel like things like SAT scores are not fully indicative of somebody's full potential. There have been reports from the admissions department that, um, you know, the essays that the students had written were substandard, yet they were, and they were actually initially rejected. But then that decision was overturned by Heft, who's the vice president of enrollment management I mentioned earlier. Um, And those students, you know, the student athletes that are recruited are just as much pawns as, you know, other new college students anyway. When that massive number of athletes were recruited, they were promised um, premium on-campus housing. And that, as a result, students who had already chosen that housing were kicked out of their housing and sent to live in hotels. And so it's just, you know, from a from an academic standpoint, in terms of getting the classes they need, there's turmoil from a campus life perspective about sort of, you know, being able to even live on campus and be able to access the dining hall at times that you need and be able to get to your classes on time. That's a problem. And for a lot of students, there's a lot of uncertainty about which of their professors will still be there in a year or two. And so at a place like New College, which is, again, a small college, really relies on a lot of student-faculty interaction and relationship building over the course of years. And if there's an uncertainty about which professors may even be around in the future, either due to them leaving or being denied tenure or what what have you, those students are going to have a lot of uncertainty over the future of their own education, which is really devastating. Well, students aren't the only ones who are unhappy at New College. According to a report from Inside Higher Ed, between February and September of this year, 77 employees departed New College, six involuntarily, and 87 new full-time and 31 part-time workers were hired. There were also complaints filed with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights, alleging an ongoing trend of discrimination against protected groups, such as LGBTQ plus students, uh, creating a hostile environment for those students. Uh, where do things stand now? Well, I think with respect to the complaints filed with the, the Office of Civil Rights, one complaint concerned uh, access for students with disabilities, and that was resolved. 
the other complaint, the much more substantial one, basically argued the what, as you quoted, an ongoing trend of discrimination on campus. And the so far, unless something has happened that I don't know about since we completed the report, the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights has not yet responded to that by opening an investigation. We will see what takes place. But I want—I do want to stress one thing, is that these departures uh, from New College and actually departures of faculty and, and mid-level and lower administrators throughout the state's higher education system, as well as departures of students from New College and, and I suspect from some other schools, is a reflection of the overall environment. New College is, is again, it's the extreme case. It's kind of the vanguard of the DeSantis uh, assault on higher education. And so it's most extreme there. But one thing that really strikes me uh, and it struck me anew when I reread our report just yesterday, is the sheer cruelty of this whole approach, the complete, you know, cynicism of attempting to apply these abstract ideological standards to real genuine people who will suffer. And that's really what has happened at New College in most extreme version, but it's happening throughout the state as uh, uh, as a number of people we spoke to testify and we report on in in our uh, report. You've been listening to AUP Presents. After the break, we'll look at the broader impact of DeSantis's attacks on higher education in Florida. Thanks for listening. Let's step back a minute and look at the broader impact of the DeSantis administration's policy on higher ed in Florida. On March 16, 2022, Governor DeSantis signed Senate Bill 520 into law, which creates an exemption to Florida's Sunshine Law and allows presidential search committees to run secretive searches with effectively no faculty, student, or public input. There are a lot of examples in the report of how this has affected searches. But Hank, again, can you walk us through one search and what the law means for institutions as well as for the census administration's influence over them? Sure. Uh, There have been several, as you mentioned. I think the one that has gotten the most attention has been the search for the president of Florida Atlantic University. And to step back for a moment, uh, although... DeSantis's, shall we say, cronies uh, seem to have total control of the system-wide Board of Governors. They do not yet have the same kind of control of all the individual boards of trustees of each of the individual institutions. And in Florida Atlantic, when they did a search for uh, the president there, they they had uh, 63 applicants and they selected three finalists. uh, And they were for what it would appear to be from the names and backgrounds, I won't go into detail, highly qualified finalists. But they did not include in their list of three finalists a man named Randy Fine, who is a member of the Florida House of Representatives and a close ally of DeSantis, who claimed that DeSantis asked him to apply. 
Uh, and many people thought that it, it was a done deal. He was going to get the position because he was DeSantis's man. Uh, when he wasn't included as a finalist, immediately the Board of Governors stepped in and shut down the search, uh, arguing that there had been anomalies in the process, uh, that the search firm that had been hired to conduct the search had 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 a survey of candidates which allegedly asked them about their sexual orientation. And much of this was clearly a, a, a distraction, a red herring, so to speak. Uh, and it was really issues about, about the fact that they did not hire fine. Uh, the Board of Trustees has so far stuck to their guns on this. Uh, and I suspect eventually this search will have to be redone. The interesting thing is, I think if it is redone, fine. Uh, who is, by the way, the only Jewish Republican in the Florida legislature, Fine will no longer probably be the favorite candidate since he has since shifted his endorsement of DeSantis to Donald Trump. Uh, and that got Fine into trouble, I guess, when Fine recently, and this is since we completed the report, tweeted a, a phony report that a University of Florida tenured professor had made anti-Semitic pro-Hamas comments, which, of course, it turned out that that was not true. That one, if such comments were made, they were made by somebody who four years ago had briefly taught for part time at the University of Florida, but hadn't been on the payroll for four years. And in fact, University of Florida President Ben Sass himself, it could be argued, they uh, got the position as a result of a politically tilted search. Uh, ben Sass called him out on this and basically stood up actually for uh, for free expression on the campus, which was a, a one least positive development. But I think, you know, what that shows is the tawdry nature of, of these things. And no wonder they have to put it behind closed doors and camp out of the sunshine because uh, uh, if this is the way uh, presidents are going to be hired in Florida, uh, if it became public, the public wouldn't stand for it. So it's clear that these right-wing attacks are not just confined to higher education, uh, they're coming from all angles, including, as someone mentioned, attacks on unions in Florida, DEI initiatives, harassment and intimidation of LGBTQ plus faculty and students, and of course, laws like the infamous Stop Woke Act passed in spring 2022, which res re restricts teaching on race. That law was enjoined by the district court and is under appeal, but even without being enforced, all of these efforts have had a chilling, have had chilling effects on academic freedom, individual rights, and basically uh, public discourse. Those interviewed in the report describe, quote, an incredible climate of fear and a Kafkaesque atmosphere pervading the state's higher education systems. So I throw this question out to anyone. Is it safe to say that DeSantis and his right-wing allies in the legislature are winning regardless of what happens in the courts? That's a great question. And I suspect the answer is different for different people depending on the day and what has happened that day. Uh, I will add that, you know, on the one hand, for me, as the report says, uh, and I agree the damage has already been done, regardless of the outcome of these bills. As you just said, there is 
self-censorship, there's fear, hostility, there's the migration out of Florida, all of which might lead us to conclude that things are hopeless, that we have already lost Florida. The question I ask myself is what gives me hope? In order for all of us to be engaged in the work that we're currently doing, there has to be some hope, right, that that makes us keep doing this work. And the answer for me is simple. It's the people. The people who are out there resisting every day, they're the ones who give me hope. The ones who raise their voices every day, develop coalitions, organize alternative commencements to protest their college administration. They give me hope that all isn't lost in Florida just yet. And I wish I wish I could capture for you all the spirit of some of our interviewees, um, including people like Liz, the, the fire and the passion that ignites them to persist and resist, to call out their administrations and politicians, to still walk into class and teach what they do, to offer support to their students and colleagues, regardless of what the law might be or the repercussions might be. That's what gives me hope that this story hasn't reached its conclusion yet, and that DeSantis and his allies haven't won just yet. I want to second that. I think the question to my mind is not, is it safe that to say that they're winning regardless of what happens in the courts? Because I think, one, what happens in the courts will also matter. But as, as Afshan so eloquently put it, uh, it's the spirit of people. And, and the fact of the matter is, I think DeSantis, the collapse of his presidential campaign suggests that these ideas are not going to play as well among the public as he and people like Rufo think they will. But one of the main points to m- make here is that this barrage of legislation is that the legislation is self-contradictory. One law tells people they can't censor what is said in class, and the next law tells them they must censor what, what, what's said in class. I mean, who who could follow these laws? But in fact, as several of the people we interviewed pointed out, that's exactly the point. They really don't want to have these laws implemented as they're written. They want to have them collectively create an atmosphere in which of fear and and compliance, and particularly compliance by administrators. And one of the things that was most disappointing uh, as in, in our report is as courageous uh, and optimistic even at times, so many of the faculty members we talked with were, what is most striking is how craven and even cowardly so many administrators in Florida have been, and not just the cronies appointed at places like New College, but even the traditional college administrators who were there before will be there after, who have engaged in sort of, you know, well, let's act on the, on what we think they want so they won't do any worse kind of uh, approach to things rather than standing up for principles. And, and, and that's highly disappointing uh, to us. But I do think Afshan's right. It's countered by the spirit of militancy and organizing and optimism that so many faculty members have. uh, have. And that I might add, I suspect 
growing numbers of people, uh, just ordinary citizens in Florida must have. Is, and one of the, my hopes for this report is that it won't just be read in higher education circles, but that uh, the media and ordinary citizens will, will see what's going on and be outraged, as outraged as we are. Um, and as you've all said, the report highlights and you've highlighted the human toll of this collective assault. Uh, the report states that faculty are leaving Florida and they are doing so because the conditions of their employment are becoming insufferable and they can no longer do their jobs. Liz, you left. Tell us why and whether you think the departures will continue for those who've remained, given that a recent AAUP survey of more than 600 faculty members in the Florida state system found that 46% of them said they would seek employment out of the state in the next year. <laughs> I'll start with why I left. So and I'll start by saying I left because I could leave. So I'm very aware that not everybody in Florida who's working as a professor there or, you know, learning as a student or working as a staff member has the resources or support or luxury or options of being able to leave. So to some extent, I was able to leave because I could. And I really feel for, for those who, you know, feel like they can't leave. And I hope that situations, you know, the situation can improve for them. Um, when all of this started happening on January 6th of 2023, when the new members of the Board of Trustees were all announced, to me, it became clear to me very quickly that all of this had sort of been lined up like dominoes, right? Like all of these new, you know, enough vacancies accrued on the board to then have this whole slate of folks approved at once in the context of all this legislation. It seemed to me like things were going to happen. <laughs> and by the end of the semester, it was not clear to me what the college would look like. So again, not to make another, you know, Florida reference, but when we talk about, you know, experiencing a hurricane, when the hurricane's approaching, there's a cone of uncertainty of where could the hurricane fall? You know, could it fall as far south as Miami, as far north as Tallahassee, somewhere in between? And for me, the cone of uncertainty of new college by the end of the semester, looking at it, you know, looking down the road towards the end of the semester was large enough that in that sort of prompted me to to start looking at what was out there. Eventually, I, I found a um, situation that works really well for me and that I feel really lucky to to have to be able to move. But with every event that happened that semester, <laughs> every single action and event that happened um, by the administration validated my choice a little bit more every time. So, you know, at the tenure denials, at removing all of the gender-neutral bathroom signs to make the campus less safe and welcoming environment for some of our students and faculty and staff. Each one of those decisions validated my choice to be able to think about what was out there for me beyond Florida. Um, whether I think that the departures will continue, absolutely, I think that they will. In late August, it was reported that 40% of the new college faculty um, was not on campus that year. So between sabbaticals, between people who retired either on time or early, between people who um, took a leave of absence, short-term unpaid leave of absence, people who resigned, between all of those groups of people, you're at 40% of the new college faculty. And that happened in basically an off-cycle time of the year of the academic job market. So many jobs in academia, like we know, oftentimes posted at the beginning of the year, 
Um, you know, many searches happen in the fall semester. So all of this happened in a fairly off-cycle time of the year. This year, we're on-cycle. And so um, it remains to be seen how many faculty who are gone this year will return. It remains to be seen how many faculty who are there currently will remain. And, you know, ultimately, if too many people leave, then new college is in a very difficult position of maybe not even being able to offer or staff some of their programs. So, for example, neuroscience, which was a program that I taught in, had three faculty who were um, affiliated with the program, um, two left, one remains. And so, you know, the question is next year, will one remain? Will they be able to hire anybody else or will that one person, you know, decide to do something else, right? We'll have to see what happens, but I'm not super optimistic. Well, one could almost say that a crime against higher education and a higher education institution has been committed in Florida for sure. But finally, the report's conclusions, much as what Liz had to say, are deeply sobering, especially because the right-wing assault on higher education and democracy in general, sadly, are not limited to Florida. The report concludes that, quote, placing Florida in a broader national context is insufficient. The attack on academic freedom is part of an extensive assault on democracy worldwide. Florida and other states following suit are part of a global rise in right-wing nationalistic political agendas that know well the power of a diminished sense of citizenship, increased surveillance, and increased obedience to the state. What can we do to slow or stop this attack? And I welcome responses from Hank or Afshan. One of the deeply, deeply disappointing aspects of this work and our interviews, as you know, Hank mentioned earlier, um, was how cowardly and how quiet campus administrators have been during this time. They have done very little to support their faculty, staff, and students. But the other aspect that we didn't get to talk about today and which was just as disappointing was how little some professional disciplinary organizations have done to support faculty in their fields. So I guess my first call to action would be to those two groups that it really is time for disciplinary organizations to step up, to wake up and pay attention to what is happening to faculty. Because like we've been saying, and as you just said, this is not confined to Florida. Uh, to think that maybe it's only a few members of the discipline working in Florida who are affected is really the wrong approach to take. And disciplinary organizations and, and leaders for these organizations need to start paying attention. And I really don't know how much more devastation of public higher education we need to see before they step up. And that goes for <laughs> that goes double for campus leadership and what they have not done to support faculty, staff, and students on their campus. I would also urge faculty members in and outside of Florida in public and private institutions to pay attention, uh, speak out. You know, if you're somebody who can write op-eds or do public media appearances, then then do that. Get engaged in your own campus. Uh, write to your political, to your local politicians. And urge your campus administrators to take preemptive stands on these issues. 
because it is coming for people outside of Florida and we need to be prepared. We need to have a plan for what's going to happen when it reaches our campuses. And of course, as voters, we need to remember that we put these politicians in office. So we need to organize and raise awareness about what we've done and vote them out. If this is the direction that they are going to go in, um, this really is endangering not just higher ed, but a type of higher ed that is essential to maintaining a democratic society. As we conclude in the report, the survival of higher education free from political interference and ideological censorship hangs in the balance here. We need to take a stand and we need to do it now. I'd like to add one thing that I think is important to, to mention, which is when DeSantis and his people took control of New College, when they took control of the Board of Governors, I think they believed that the only faculty who would really care were in the so-called woke disciplines. And that that was their aim of attack, that, that they could keep all everything just as they think it should be normal and STEM in business schools, etc. But they would just get rid of these pesky gender studies people and ethnic studies people and historians who don't just, you know, mouth patriotic truisms. But in fact, one of the things that struck me in our report is how many of the faculty who were standing up to them are not only from these disciplines, in fact, not mainly. Liz mentioned that she does, she's in neuroscience. She mentioned a search in botany where all the candidates, when they saw what was going on there, withdrew their applications. Uh, we have examples of mathematics professors, law professors, etc., all of whom are saying, I want, uh, I want nothing to do with, with what's going on here, etc. So I, I think that is, it encourages me, and I think it, it was a bit of a shock to, the, to Rufo and DeSantis and Corcoran and people like that, um, but it also should be a source of optimism for us that, that you know, a concern for academic freedom and, and, and shared governance are among the faculty are not and should not and are not limited to people only in those disciplines being directly assaulted because we sink or swim together. And I think this is an, an important lesson uh, of this uh, of this investigation. Thank you for listening to AAUP Presents, and thanks to Anita for guest hosting today, and to Afshan, Liz, and Hank for joining us. You can read the full report on our website at aup.org, and it's also linked in the show notes. And please do, it's a compelling read. If you enjoy AAUP Presents, rate us and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Thanks for listening.